Okay, so this will be in the series of A New Covenant, The Truth About Freedom. This will be part three. <clears throat> I'm not going to recap the others. You can go and listen to them, watch them. But this is part three, and I want to talk to you about what I call the reluctant God. Um, what I'm about to teach you is, is critical for your application of the New Covenant. If you don't grasp what I'm about to talk to you about, you will really struggle to allow the new covenant that Jesus came to bring, the new promise, the new legal agreement, you will struggle to make that um, a reality in your understanding and your living because this, this revelation we're going to talk about tonight is critical. Um, one of the phrases I like to use is, and again, I don't have my picture, but I've told you there is a picture of me that looks as though in Barcelona or at Gaudi Park, I'm peeing into a lady's bag, um, and the crowd's not even bothered. The truth is, it's just the angle of view uh, is what allows you to believe that 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 is the truth. So, so the angle from which we view anything determines our perception of that thing. Now. We have to be humble enough to say that we always view scripture, we always view uh, conversation and teaching from a certain angle. And uh, I want to try and shift your angle of view a little bit in the context of God tonight, if you'll allow me to do that. Um, I have been increasingly aware that if we embrace the truth of the new covenant... Uh, then everything changes. It's like dominoes when you touch one and everything begins to fall. So, so I want to talk about another one of those dominoes that has to fall in our understanding um, tonight. If I go back to two verses in uh, our original talk um, on the basic theology of New Covenant, there are two verses in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 and verse 13, which are either side of the basic statement for what we're teaching, that the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, etc., etc., etc. And these are those two verses that, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. So we actually have a record in Scripture declaring to us, if you put that into the positive that there was something wrong with the first covenant. The first covenant being the covenant that was established with Moses, which was rooted in the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments. But I've told you before, it was fatally flawed, but deliberately so, because when God gave the commandments, he was never giving them so that we could prove we could keep them. So you have to change your lens. He was giving them that in our attempts to make God a God who punishes wrong and, and rewards good to show us that if we try to live that way, it will never work for us and that the law and the commandments were there to show us that we could never live up to the standard that they would require of us. And that was deliberately done by God to show us that that was not the way that we need to live or that we need to teach the world to live, but there was a better solution. And then verse uh, 13, it says, By calling this covenant new, that's the new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. We explained that a lot um, in the first session, so I'm not going to go over that again. But simply to say this, that in Christ, the old covenant was obliterated, removed, declared obsolete. No spare parts were being made for it because the person who made it originally does not want to keep it. That's the law and the commandments. 
God is not making spare parts for the old covenant. He's not trying to uphold the law or fulfill the commandments. He's trying to bring you to a new commandment which comes to us in Christ in John 13 verse 34 where Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So now the new covenant shifts us into everything being about our appreciation of how much God loves us. Not that you love your neighbor as yourself, but you love one another as I have loved you. So now the focus is in all of the new covenant on not me getting God to love me, but my appreciation of God already loving me and assimilating that into my life so that that then becomes how I live in the world. So if everything seems to change so radically in the new covenant... And considering that the angle from which we view a thing determines our perception, we have to ask the question, what about God? If we look at God from another angle, what do we see? What is our perception of God? Who is God? What what is he really trying to accomplish? What is he about? And if we're going to be faithful in our interpretation of the Bible, we have to acknowledge there is a clear and critical shift in the New Testament in relation to who we understand God to be. So what if I were to tell you that God never wanted to be God? What if I were to suggest to you that at best God is a reluctant God? See, our understanding of God is really a reflection of our Greek or Roman way of thinking. You may not realize it, but most of what we understand a God to be is the consequence of Greek thinking, emphasized in Roman culture, of course passed into our history, so now we create an image of God that we don't realize is actually less the construct of a proper understanding of who he is in the narrative and the evolution of the Bible and the relationship with man and more the construct of our understanding of gods through the eyes of the Greeks and the Romans, through Plato and Aristotle. And of course, hence the reason why then we have an image of God where we need God to be bigger than, better than, greater than, more than. In other words, we need God to be the supreme ruler, the supreme emperor, the Caesar of Christianity, who rules over his empire like Caesar ruled over his. One great thing uh, I read Brian McLaren say is that we have Roman Catholics and we have Roman Evangelicals. But both schools of thought have their thinking influenced and impacted by the Greek or Roman mind. Now, if you look at Greek and Roman history, you will see a polytheistic society. By that we mean, not that they kept parrots, but that, but that they had multiple gods, polytheistic, many gods. So if you are developing your thinking from a polytheistic viewpoint of many gods then it makes sense that your God has to be bigger than all the other gods, better than all the other gods, stronger than all the other gods. So, uh, a dear friend Augustine, who has had more impact on Christian thinking than Christ, uh, with whom I disagree on many, many points, 
was the guy who introduced to us what's known as the omnis and the imnis. God is omnipotent, that means he's all-powerful. He is omniscient, he is all-knowing, he is omnipresent, he is everywhere. Uh, and uh, immutable, he does not change, all these kind of things. Uh, if you understand that, that um, Augustine came from a Greek philosophical background, he was known as a Neoplatonist. He was an extreme presenter of the philosophy of Plato, the Greek. So coming into Christianity, he brings that thinking with him. So now he begins to introduce to us in what seems to be very biblical ways to say that God has to know more, be more places at once, have more power, totally be unchangeable. So he introduces all those because that comes from his philosophical view of what a God should be like. So therefore the God of the Bible must be all that those gods are and more. But what if the God of the Bible is nothing like those gods? in the first place. So then we've already uh, uh, mutated our thinking to see God as a God in competition with other gods, even though every Christian would tell you there is only one God. Then why, if there's only one God, do we have to make the declarations we do about that God because there's no competition? So... So we then unwittingly actually suggest that God is insecure. That God does things because he's insecure about who he is. So God has to show his power. He has to show his wisdom. He has to show his presence. And what we're really suggesting is God has to do that because God somehow is insecure and he needs to make himself feel okay about himself. Now you might say, well that's pretty strange thinking, but if you really analyze this, that really is in essence what we're saying. But I suggest to you that God is not insecure and does not need to be put in some of the molds that we've put him in and some of the suggestions that we make about him. So our interpretation of the gospel therefore also reflects this way of viewing God. Okay? Because here's, here's the root, okay? Here's the root of Greek or Roman thinking, right? The gods are angry, the gods must be appeased, okay? Is that, is that not the, the root that we cut? The gods are angry, the gods must be appeased. Now, translate that and look at the gospel. Where is that going to make you interpret the gospel? God is angry, God must be appeased. So can you see how we're already, we're putting God in the same mold as Greek and Roman gods, Zeus, Apollos, all these, Diana. So, so there's also the issue that, that if you upset the gods, you will be punished. If you please the gods, you will be protected and rewarded. So my question would be, in what way does that god differ from the Greek or Roman version? And we could go for quite some time tonight showing that our god, as we we're led to believe he is, does not differ from the Greek or Roman version of a God. So what sets him apart? If they get angry and our God gets angry, if we have to, if we have to please our God to get his favor and they had to please their God to get his favor, where's the difference? I suggest to you it's because that God that we were sold as the God of the Bible is actually the God of our Greek or Roman construct that we never broke 
and that we need to come back to understand who was the God of Jesus? Who was the Abba of Jesus? Is he distinctly different to this Greek or Roman model? Is he not a God like those gods? Because people will sing, our God is not like other gods. Well, I beg to differ that the God you're talking to me about is exactly like those other gods. So there has to be something distinctly unique if we are going to believe that he is not just another construct of the human mind and philosophical thinking in the need for a divine being to be present. So, so the truth is, God started something, God, sorry, God started as something, and has always been that, and in Jesus, we are invited to restore that right image of God. So I want to talk to you about the image of God as portrayed in the Bible through the lens of Jesus, okay? This is fascinating. So, um, in Luke chapter 3, we have one of the genealogical records of um, the ascendants or descendants, whichever way the, the genealogy goes. In this one, it starts at the uh, beginning, starts at, 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 at Jesus and works all the way back to Adam, okay? So we go backwards in Luke chapter 3. And uh, by the time we get to verse 38, there's a whole list of names. I'm not going to read through all that part of the chapter of the whole list of names. It's in Luke chapter 3, verse 38. It says, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And then we get to verse 38, and it says, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam. Okay, so we're all the way back to Adam now. But then what it says next is fascinating, and you'll find this in every translation version of the Bible, the Son of God. Okay, so let me read you that again. Luke 3.38, it was coming all the way down back from Jesus, and then it says, the Son of Enosh, the Son of Seth, the Son of Adam, the Son of God. So, what we have recorded in Scripture is that Adam was what? What was he? Son of, is that what the Bible says? Adam, the son of God. Okay? So, now let's, um, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 1, because Matthew chapter 1 also has the genealogy of Jesus, but it goes the other way. So, it starts back at Abraham, and it brings us all the way forward to Jesus. Okay? So in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 through 16, that genealogy is there. It says a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in verse 1, okay? So we know what it is, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it goes again through all the names, which I'm not going to bother you with. But when we get to verse 16, it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So we come all the way to Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born the Christ. Now, who was the Christ? What was the Christ? Well, if you want the scriptural backing for it, in, back in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 35, where Mary has gone to see her cousin Elizabeth, and, and she prophesies, she says, you give him the name Jesus, and then it finishes in verse 35 by saying, he will be called the Son of God. So was Jesus the Son of God? Was Adam the son of God, according to the Bible narrative? So if, if, if both Jesus and Adam were the son of God, who was God 
to Adam. Was God Adam's God or was God Adam's father? Does it say anywhere that he was Adam's God? You will not find it. What you will find is this reference that because Adam was the son of God, created from God, created by God, one with God, because he was made in his image and his likeness, that therefore God was not God to Adam. God was father to Adam. God was Adam's father. So then we come to Jesus who was also made, created in the womb of a virgin, not by any human construct, but by the same hand of God that made Adam. Jesus the word becomes flesh and dwells among us and he is the son of God. So the question then is, was God Jesus's God or was God Jesus's father? So we immediately have a challenge to say, did God ever really want to be God to humanity? So we now have to reshape our thinking because everything we have been taught from Greek or Roman thinking dwells on the power base of someone who wants to be God and rule over things when actually in God the Father we have a completely different perspective in the context of his relationship with humanity. So could it be then that in the truth of the new covenant, God himself does not change, because he is who he is, but who we embrace him to be does. Let's look a little bit of of the, the picture that brings us to this, because the Old Testament starts with God referred to as, is the Hebrew word Elohim, okay? Now, of course, that's Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God... The word is Elohim, okay? The Hebrew word. That word Elohim means divine ruler or powerful. It's drawing attention that somebody powerful created the the world and everything that is in it. In the beginning, God. But the word that's used, Hebrew, is Elohim. So when you're going to encounter the word God in the Old Testament of the Bible, it's not just one statement. It's actually uses different words. So I'm going to give you the different words to show you that God to the Hebrew mind was never just one thing. And in many ways, the the names that they had for him were trying to somehow grasp um, his involvement in and describe that involvement in the context of humanity. Okay, so, so it starts off with Elohim, the divine ruler, the powerful one who created the world. The most used name for God in the Old Testament is Jehovah or, or Yahweh, whichever way you want to say it. It's the same word, really, Jehovah and Yahweh, which means the self-existent one and the one who causes existence. So that was another word that the Hebrews would use. Uh, there's also another major word, which is the word El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, kind of, when you get your Western hands onto it. Uh, If you keep your Eastern hands on it, it actually means the many-breasted one. Now you say, well, why, why, why would we then decide that El Shaddai uh, is is the is the um, uh, the God Almighty? Because when we look at it through our construct, we take then that Hebrew word, which really, it's the God of the hills. 
is another way of, of that word being interpreted, the God of the hills. But if you look at the literal, literal interpretation, it's the many-breasted one. So it's interesting that in the Jewish understanding of God, the Hebrew understanding of God, God is also the many-breasted one. Now you say, well, what's all that about? Well, it's about nurture. God is a nurturer, is a powerful nurturer. So they also have another word. So you see, there isn't just one word for God. Uh, in fact, in essence, I could argue that in Hebrew, the word God doesn't exist because all these names mean who he is and they're all descriptions of some aspect of what they see about him. So the other major one is, is the word Adonai, which means Lord or Master. So what's interesting is, as we now come through to the New Testament, we don't see these names come through, okay? You don't read in the New Testament about Adonai and, and Yahweh and, and um, uh, El Shaddai and, and um, uh, Elohim. But what we read is the word God. And so now we've brought all those We've already got four different declarations of trying to get a handle on who this person, the divine, is in the Hebrew mind. We now bring it into the Greek in the New Testament, and we just have the word God. Okay? Now, I want to take that a bit further. Just hold that thought. Because in the Old Testament, there are also seven other names which are attached to their attempts to describe the define and who he is. And, and um, these seven names describe something specifically that, that God is. And these are known with Bible scholars as the compound names of Jehovah. Don't ask me why you know, people come up with these titles, but they're known as the compound names of Jehovah. And there are seven. And they all start with Jehovah. So there's Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rophe, Jehovah, Jehovah Nisi. Now, I won't bore you with all of them because to some of you it won't make a lot of sense, but the seven are Jireh, Rophe, Nisi, Shalom, Sidkenu, Shammah, and Rohai. And they mean Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides, and then it goes the Lord who heals, the one who is my banner, which was important to identity, okay? Uh, the Lord who brings peace, the Lord who is our righteousness, the God who is always there, the, the God who is my shepherd. Those seven names added with those other four names, you can see that we've already got seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven different expressions trying to define and describe who this divine person is that these people are now having an experience of. And so they, they, can't, they can't button him down, really, if they're honest, to one thing, because the reason they can't button him down is because he's not a God like the concept of what a God is, because he's not looking to be a God, he's looking to be something completely different to a God. So can you see how in these words they're struggling to, to get a handle on this, who is this divine, what, we know he's almighty, we know he's great, but who really is he and what is he about? And so... As we've got these names, what's fascinating is then when we come into the New Testament, we have something very interesting because none of those names come through into the New Testament. And uh, we then do something in, in, in the language, which of course would be in the Greek and we're now translated into the English, that 
that can cause us a problem because we now, for all of those names, we clump those under, under one title and that, that title is God. Okay? Now you might think, well, that's good, that helps us. But actually, really, it doesn't. Because then having clumped those into the word God, whatever your concept of what a God should be, that will be who you think he is, right? So now all those things have been sucked in and we say we believe in God. But what do we mean by believe in God and who is this God we believe in? Well, I suggest to you that the problem is outside of a new covenant understanding we fall into the category described by the French philosopher Blaise Pascal when he said God made man in his image and man has returned the favour. That we now construct with that one word, it gives, us, it gives us the opportunity then to describe God from whatever our model is of what we think a God should be. Now, the, the Greek word that's used there is the word theos. Okay, That's the Greek word for God, theos. So we just read, he's called Theos, Theos, Theos. Now, um, of course, from Theos comes theology, okay, which is the study of God, theology. Um, what's fascinating about this when we begin to break this down is that, is that when we use the term Theos or God, this name only informs you of the type of being that he is. It doesn't tell you anything about the nature of his being, right? It only tells you the type of being that he is. It only tells you the species to which he belongs. Let me illustrate that, okay? Man, 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 man. What has that told you about any of those men? Absolutely nothing other than that they belong to the species called man. So we can do the same thing again. Woman, 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 woman. What has that told you about those women? It's told you nothing except the species to which you belong. So here is the problem. When we hear the word theos or God, it is only describing the species to which one belongs. So God tells me nothing about God, other than that's the species to which he belongs. So the problem is, unless we go beyond that, we can then decide what we think that species is like. And so we begin to create God in our own image. Now, you cannot take an honest look at the narrative of Scripture and follow the pattern of his dealings with humanity without concluding that that's never what he intended to be. We've already put the case that the genealogy going backwards brings us to Adam, who was the son of God. It brings us forward to, to Jesus, who was the son of God. And so we have this issue of son of God. Now, one of the little piece of evidence in this debate is way back again in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. So God, and we're called God, there's no, no problem using the, the word, we just need to understand this. we're just describing the nature of the species to which he belongs. God creates Adam, he makes man in his image's likeness, he sees the man is alone, we talked about that in the last 
teaching session. And so he, he makes a woman and brings her to the man. And when he brings the woman to the man, he, he says that the two will be one flesh. And he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father because he said, you are now born of bone and flesh of flesh. Adam and Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Here's the big question. So, if that is true, who was Adam's father? And why was God telling Adam, who is the picture, the image, or the reality of the first man in the earth, to leave your father and your mother if you don't have a father and you don't have a mother? But God's instruction to Adam was, so a man will leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So the question is, who was Adam's father? Did Adam have a father? The answer to that is yes, God was Adam's father. He was not Adam's God. The big question as well is, who was Adam's mother? Because how can you leave a mother if you didn't have a mother? But then we've already heard that God was understood by the Hebrews to be the many-breasted one because this was not an issue of defining one's gender by sexuality. It was an issue of father and mother was more than male and female. That wasn't about male and female. It was about the function and the impartation. So God could be both father and mother because he is the one who gives instruction and brings to life and he's also the one who nurtures and cares for. So God was saying to Adam, now what you've learned from me, you are going to take and you're going to be the ex expression of that in the earth. Now we could take that into talking about Jesus, but I'm not going to at this point in the context of how that would apply to him because that takes us down another little path. So when we transfer through, none of these names come through because the word God or Theos is just the generic term that we use to, to, to define the species to which he belongs. Okay, and that's very important. So have we got that? Now here's what's fascinating. But when we get to the New Testament, when we get to the manifestation of Jesus in the earth, a brand new way of referring to God and God relating to us suddenly appears. It doesn't mean that God has ceased to be who he always was, but, but who he is described to be makes a radical shift. Okay? In the New Testament, or, or more accurately we should say that in the New Covenant, which Jesus came to bring, we're introduced to a brand new name for God. And anything and everything he is comes through this revealed persona. And this name that suddenly comes and appears in the New Testament when Jesus comes back on the scene, and remember that Jesus in in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 and verse 45, is referred to as, as the second Adam or the last Adam, okay? It says, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. The first man, Adam, was a living being. The last Adam, which is Christ, um, was a life-giving spirit. So there's a connection between Adam and Jesus. Why? Because God in Jesus is restoring to us what we lost with Adam, which is that God never wanted to be Adam's God. He wanted to be Adam's father. So wouldn't it make sense then that if Jesus is the last Adam, come to restore what we have lost, 
through the downfall from Adam that he would now bring us back to, first of all, a clear understanding of who the divine really is because we've already been impacted by all kinds of cultural thinking that have distorted our view of who God the divine really is. And now, of course, in Roman-ruled Jerusalem, we have been influenced by the Greek understanding coming through the Romans. And so now our temptation is to put God into that Greek or Roman model And Jesus comes along and shatters that with this brand new name. It's never used in the Old Testament. It was not understood in the Old Testament, nor was it available in the Old Covenant. And that name that Jesus brought in was the name Father. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but the sole way that Jesus referred to the divine Theos, the one who was of the species of the divine God, what did he always refer to him as? Father, 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 Father. Do you not think then that if Jesus was the representation of who the Father is in the flesh, to redesign and define our understanding of who God is, that whoever Jesus says God is, is who God actually is, and that therefore our model of God must be based on who Jesus presented him to be, not who the religious community or the polytheistic society or the Greeks or the Romans decided he should be. That God should be and be only who Jesus said that he is. And Jesus said he was only one thing, Father. I and my Father are one. No one comes to the Father except through me. You will find no place in the Gospels where Jesus ever attempted to bring anybody to God. Not a single reference of Jesus trying to bring anybody to God. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, but he didn't say nobody's going to get to God except through me, because we already have a distorted image of God, even in the Jewish mind, because we misunderstood the purpose of the law in the old covenant, we have now defined a God who rewards you for doing good, who punishes you for doing bad, whose measurement system is right and wrong and good and evil, which was the very thing in the garden that God said, this is not the way to live, this is not who I am, this is simply for you to show that you love me and are willing to live in the context of my life, but now by Jesus' day, even the religion that grew up out of his covenant with Moses, which was the old covenant, has already created a God who is all the things that just gets emphasized by our Greek and Roman thinking. So Jesus doesn't come on the scene and talk about Jehovah and Yahweh. And he's a good Jew. He comes on the scene and talks about, my father sent me. Whatever I hear my father say. Now, I want you to understand something. When you heard that as a, I'm going to use the term, God-fearing Jew, that was the height of blasphemy. You see, the Jews had even got to the point where if you were a strict, law-adhering Jew, you would not speak the name Jehovah. You would not speak the name Yahweh. They would have three letters that they would use because they were afraid to even speak the name of God for fear that his name was too holy. He was too holy. 
And if you became so familiar as to actually use his name that they had given him, Jehovah, that you could be struck down dead because that would be dishonoring and blasphemous towards the one who was so holy. Now, can you see how somehow in God's attempts to present himself as a God who wanted us to come near, when religion gets hold of it, religion says, get away, get away, get away, get away. God's saying, I want you to be at peace, and they're saying, we want you to be frightened. So no Jew dare even speak, no religious Jew dare even speak the name of God as they understood it, Yahweh or Jehovah. And then along comes Jesus, and he refers to this person so holy and untouchable as, as, as Father. You see why Jesus got into so much trouble with the religious crowd. Don't ever forget that the Romans... The occupying power, the foreigners, were not the initiators of the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the religious, it was the church of his day, it was the people living in the old covenant of Moses' law who when Jesus came along wanted to crucify him, wanted to kill him, would not have him to rule over them. Now here's the problem that happens very subtly in church today. When we get hung up on an old covenant religious mindset, rewarded for good, punished for bad, right and wrong, good and evil, we must appease God because God is angry, God will bless us if we make him happy. When we get into that arena, the truth is when the real Jesus shown up, we still want to do the same. Because he doesn't live by that criteria. He doesn't uphold that religion. And so in the same way that they crucified Jesus, the church would be the very people right now, if Jesus turned up, who would crucify Jesus. Because they'd say, you're messing up our religion. We got this neat and tidy and it's going well and you're spoiling it. So this, this, this new name that Jesus used was, to the Jews, very, very, very familiar and shouldn't be used. Um... There's only four clear references of the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament, okay, going back into the Old Testament. Uh, they're in Deuteronomy 1, verse 30 and 31, Psalm 68, verse 5, Psalms 89, verse 26, and Isaiah 9, verse 6. But none of them speak of God being the father of the children of Israel. The phrase you will most commonly read in the Old Testament is the God of your fathers. The God of your fathers. The God of your fathers. So what I'm proposing to you is that, is that in, in the slide of our humanity, we began to redefine what we thought God wanted and who we thought God was that's been influenced by all the, um, all the effects of society developing through history that, that dangerously brings us to a place now where actually we create a God who is more like the Greek and the Roman gods than he is the father of Jesus. So, when you look at Jesus, well, two things, let me throw this in first. First of all, it's important for me to cover what your image of father is because for some of you, um, I have to appreciate and accept that you have had earthly fathers, physical fathers, who have been unkind, angry, distant, dismissive, um, maybe aggressive, brutal, maybe some of you have been abused by an earthly father. So when we talk about Father God, I, I fully appreciate that the images in the mind when you talk about God being a father will automatically attach to whatever our experience of a father has been on earth. I, I, I was very blessed to have a very loving 
and kind and generous and gentle father for which I, so my image of fatherhood is, was already helped along. But I often say this to people when we're talking about God being a father. If you had a bad experience of fatherhood, I want you just for a moment, just don't think about that. But if you could now choose what you would like a father to be, how you would like that father to treat you, what you would like that father to do for you and towards you, who you would like that father to be. If you could choose, if, if, if you didn't have that brute that you had, but you could actually choose tonight and you could construct a father that is the father of your dreams, multiply that by a thousand and you're getting somewhere near to what God the Father is like, okay? So I want you to get that image and not, not the other image. So, so as, we, as we push this through, the, the issue is then if we, from the beginning of Jesus' ministry and um, in, in incidents before he began his ministry, because remember Jesus began his ministry when he was baptised, uh, he exclusively refers to God as Father except for on one occasion. Now, if I'm going to be technically correct, there are two occasions because Jesus one time said, I go to my God and to your God. Uh, that, that would be the other occasion, but we, I could explain that, but it's not particularly relative to what we have to say. In the context of Jesus talking to God and with God, he exclusively refers to him as Father except for one occasion, which is in Matthew 27 and verse 46. Jesus has been crucified He's on the cross, uh, he has been tortured, he's in agony, he's dying, and suddenly he cries out, my what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only occasion in the life of Jesus that we have recorded that he referred to God as God. Every other time he referred to him as Father. And he said, why have you forsaken me. Can I, can I propose something to you? Could it be that every time we feel forsaken, it's because we have ceased to see him as father? That in that moment, whatever Jesus was going through in dealing with the sins of the world and his sacrifice and what all that means, in that moment, all of a sudden, he, he somehow lost sight of the Father. And in losing sight of the Father, all he was left with was an image of God. And the image of God in Jesus' mind was one of being forsaken. Therefore, to Jesus, when you've lost the Father and you see a God, it's going to leave you in one place and that's feeling forsaken because that's all gods can ever do, which is why Jesus was never into introducing us to God. He was into introducing us to the Father and which is why God never wanted to be a God because that's the kind of thing God does, but, but he always wanted to be a father right from the beginning, from Adam all the way through, and therefore God does not want to be your God, and God does not want to be my God, and he doesn't want you or I to see him as God, he wants you and I to see him as this wonderful, amazing father, so that we can say like Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. that amazing? But if we go down the religious path, that's never going to happen. 
So, so not only does the new covenant make the old covenant obsolete, which we read in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, but the new name in the new covenant makes the old name in the old covenant obsolete. That, that follows, doesn't it? If we've been given a new covenant that makes the old covenant obsolete, then if we've been given a new name, it makes the old name obsolete. Now, that doesn't mean that I can never say God again. But as long as I understand that when I use the phrase God, I am only referring to the species. God is a God. He's not a human. He's a God. But I'm only describing his species. But you said, but who is he? He is Father. What is he? He's a God. Who is he? He's a Father. So, so it makes it obsolete. Everything needs to come through this one revelation. And the one revelation is not what God is, but who God is now. And we don't need any other names for God anymore other than Father. That's why Paul wrote, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family on earth de- derives its name. So, I come now to some of the nonsense that I have taught and uh, has been taught. Classic one being now, looking through that lens, if we come back to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, which says these words, Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. Now, here's what I used to teach. And here's what I was taught. So I, I taught to others what I was taught to me. I was very compliant. I, I, just, I just received what I was told. And it's only since I became more rebellious um, that I've actually found some truth. But in all genuineness, this is what I was taught, and this is what I taught, and this is what I have heard taught. That our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, here's what we would teach. That we have to reverence God's name. And then in reverencing God's name, we would then teach the four names that we talked about, you know, Elohim, uh, Jehovah, Adonai, El Shaddai. And we'd teach, you know, he's Jehovah our healer, he's Jehovah our... Our, our righteousness is Jehovah our banner, is Jehovah our shepherd. And we would say, what we have to do in prayer is reverence all of these names for it's who God is. So we are, we are hallowing those names. But by what authority have we taught that nonsense? It's very clear what it says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the name? that we are given, that we are told to hallow. Hallow means to reverence, to uphold with honour, right? Which is the name that we've been given to uphold with honour? Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, is saying, guys, the key to this is to stop seeing God as God. Now, let me tell you why that's important. And some of you may dispute this, but I hope not. Once we see God as God, we have to treat God like a God because God behaves like a God. So we have, to have, we have to have fasting and prayer to plead with God to send revival on the nation. Right? Why? Because he behaves like a God. What do gods behave like? We do what the heck we want. And if you please us, we'll bless you. And if you upset us, we'll curse you. So we then have prayer gatherings to say we're going to gather together and we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to plead with God that he'll send revival on our nation, that he'll bless our nation. So here's the implication. 
God has the power to bless the nation and to help people, but he's just not going to do it. He just the heck is going to do it. Well, when might you do it, God? Not sure. Okay, so, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll try to appease your anger, right? We'll try to appease the anger of the gods, and we'll try to please the gods so that they will look kindly on us. Can you see? We're back to Greek or Roman gods. It's not the God of Jesus. It's not the Abba of Jesus. It's not the Father of Jesus. We're back to the Greek model. Jesus said, here's how you should pray. Just honor the fact and reverence the fact and appreciate the fact that I am your Father. So therefore, I will act like what? A Father. How many of you know if you look at the models of gods in history and the model of a Father, the two are not the same, right? So God's saying, you have to approach me, see me, understand me, receive me, and live under me as a father. Now, Jesus said lots of stuff about that, because Jesus said, okay, if a child comes and asks his father for bread, will he give him a stone? If he comes and asks for a fish, will he give him a scorpion? And if he comes and asks for the Holy Spirit, won't he give him the Holy Spirit? So he said, if your earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will not your Father in heaven give his Spirit to those who ask of him? Or in other words, Jesus is pushing us to say he behaves like a father because he is a father, but if you insist on making him a God, your experience will be of him as a God because all of your lens will be seeing the God thing and then you won't live in the blessing of being under a father. Jesus came to set us free. That's why the new covenant is the truth about freedom. It's setting you free from the God thing and freeing you into the father thing. See, if God is a God, you're a subject of a God. But if God is your father, you're the son of a father. If God is your God, you're a distant subject, one of billions. But if God is your father, you're one who's unique and close to his heart and the apple of his eye and one who he loves and pours his desire upon and never leaves and never forsakes. Can you see the difference? Okay? So, so... I, I believe this scripture, we have to get a, um, a fresh lens on this. It's our Father in heaven. And that's the name that has been released. So it's no longer about what he is, but it's about who he is. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, for me, it gets even better because we're invited to relate to this Father in the most intimate way because he's brought us into the closest possible relationship one can ever have. Because we're told in the Bible that he has become our Abba. Now, that's not music and pop group in Sweden. It's um, Abba in, in, in the language that this was written. Abba was the, their equivalent of daddy. Okay? Um, there's nothing more powerful than a child referring to you in those intimate terms. Um, you know, I'm very blessed because uh, in Riley's situation, because I'm, I'm the present male um, in his life, he most often calls me dad, 
which is wonderful. It's wonderful. The, the, the heart, the expression of that is one of intimacy and closeness and a feeling of safety and security and, and you take care of me and you're with me so I'm okay. The world's all right because I have you. And uh, the wonderful thing is that not only have we come from this distant thing of God and this image of God into the realms of talking about Father, I and the Father are one, but when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14 verse 36, before he is taken captive for his crucifixion, um, he appeals for comfort to Abba. He uses the term Abba. Because he's using that close, intimate expression. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 tells us that we do not have a slave spirit, but we have a son spirit. It says you've not been given a spirit of slavery again to fear, but you've been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We've got a son spirit within us. And the same also in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6 and 7 that says that because we have come to Abba, we have become heirs and joint heirs with Christ Jesus because we really are sons. We really are part of the family. He really is our father. He's not our God. So before we wrap this up, I, I want to deal with one little... Um, practical question that I think is very important for us as, as followers of Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, um, you can manipulate the circumstances and the truth and make excuses, but there's a lot of murder, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of genocide. There's a lot of instructing that whole villages and cattle and everything kill every last one of them and don't leave a survivor. Um, these are some of the uncomfortable questions that you will be asked in debate with people who um, don't don't believe the Bible and and feel that God is a monster. Um, And, uh, you know, if your answer is, well, you know, you've just got to trust God because God knows what he's doing, it's like, I would walk away from you. I would think you're an idiot. Um, We cannot leave some of these things unanswered. Now, I mentioned a little bit on, on Saturday night that some of the things that I believe happened in all of that were, were um, part of the process of our own humanity developing situations that very often, because we have no other way to describe it, we ascribe it to God. So um, if, you, if you believe that America was full of sinners and that they were accommodating sinful behavior and the judgment of God was on America when the planes flew into the, into the, the World Trade Center, if you believe in that kind of God, you would say, like some people, is God is judging America. Now, I think that's utter nonsense, and I think it's disgraceful to ascribe things like that to God. But I want you to understand something. If your image of God is the image that we have described, the angry God, the one who has to be appeased, the one who blesses if you make him happy, or the one who curses if you make him unhappy, then it's not difficult for you to ascribe any disaster to God. Now, I'm unconvinced, I'll be honest, that that every um, genocidal act in the Bible that was ascribed to God was necessarily God. Um, I... I 
mess with the view that sometimes if that's your best way of describing what you think was behind what happened, then you quite happily write that down and ascribe it to God. And uh, I don't ask you to, to take that without consideration, but I'm asking you to look throughout history how many things have been done in the name of God. And so, um, am I questioning the integrity of Scripture? No, I'm not. Am I questioning the conclusions of the human mind when they are recorded in the context of some situations? The answer is yes, I am. So all I'm asking you is to be broad enough minded to think you cannot just say that, well, it doesn't matter because you have to have some way of explaining why God, if he did do these things, would do those things almost indiscriminately. Do you understand what I'm saying? So at least think about it. Now, I have, I have a... I have a proposal of thought which uh, I cannot fully support yet with as much scriptural backing as I would like, but it's worth a thought, okay? Um, <clears throat> in the book of Samuel in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Israel didn't have a king. They were still in the, in the process of development where they were led by prophets of God. So we've kind of come from personal relationship through devolved relationship. Um, we reached the mountain where the law is given and instead of the people wanting to meet God, they say, we don't want to meet God. Moses, you meet God. Uh, you go meet God and you tell us whatever God tells you, you tell us, but we don't want God to tell us to our face and we don't want God to meet us to our face so we've already got this this separation going on and, and so it's led by leaders and then we get what the Bible calls judges prophets who led the children of Israel and then in this time we come to a guy called Samuel who was uh, the key prophetic voice in the nation he was really the leader of the nation and uh, the people came to him and said Samuel we want a king. And Samuel said, why do you want a king? Because we want to be like all the other nations. They have kings. We don't have a king. We're different. We want to be like them. We want to look like them. We want to have what they have. Samuel, um, with his wisdom from God leading the nation, said, no, you don't, you don't want that. Trust me, you don't want a king. The, the Lord is your king, Okay. He, he's, he's taking care of you. The Lord is your... You don't know. We want a king to be like all the other nations. And so they kept needling at Samuel. Samuel kept arguing back. He don't want it. And then Samuel went to God and said, look, this is what the people are saying. And God said to Samuel, okay, Samuel, they've pushed me this far. That's what they want. They're not going to settle. So I'll tell you what. Tell them you can have a king. But God said to Samuel, but tell them he's going to take your young men to fight in his army. He's going to take your girls to be his wives and in his harem. He's going to take your crops to feed his entourage. He's going to take your money, your taxes. And it was all he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. So Samuel goes back to the people and says, God says you can have a king, but this is what will happen. And they said, no, we want a king. We want a king. We're going to have a king. So God says, okay, you can have a king. And so what happened was God gave them a king. And that first king of Israel was, was King Saul, who 
was a young man who the Bible says was head and shoulders above the rest. So he was chosen not on, not on the quality of his heart. It he was, he was chosen on the, the stature of his body, the strength of his arm, his natural ability. And um, it, it just, that, that was an awful decision which everything that was prophesied actually came to pass. So, so they got what they wanted. Now the question was, who was it who inspired Israel to have a king? Was it God or was it the Israelites? Did God allow them to have what it was that they wanted? Okay, so, so it was their choice to have a king. And all the stuff that happened was because that's what they wanted. Okay, so here's, here's my point. The truth is most of us want a God. Because we think that what a God is and what a God has to offer is what we want. So therefore, we don't want a father, we want a God. So what happens from Adam is, his decision is, I don't want a father, I want a God. Remember what it says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become as gods, right? And that was the serpent's temptation. God knows that when you eat of the tree, you will become as gods, knowing good and evil. And so what was man's choice? We want the God thing. We want the God thing. So I have a theory that says that, that many of the things that happened in that season was because we desperately wanted God to be God. So the nation said, we want God to be a God. So I think God says, I can do the God thing. And do the God thing very well. I don't really want to do the God thing, but if you want me to do the God thing, I can do the God thing. How's that working for you? I think a possible thought in here is the intention, just like with the law, was to get us to the point where we say, God, we don't want you to be God anymore. We don't like you being God. We don't like the whole God thing. Please don't be our God. Be our Father again. We want you to be our Father again. This God thing is horrible. So I have a little theory that some of this stuff that happened in there may, may have followed that same pattern and that same model because we, in the same way that Israel had this incredible desire to have a king, we have had an incredible desire to have a God, our own God, our special God, right? Our only God that's caused all the problems because God never wanted to be that. So, the issue is then that, in my mind, God never wanted to be God. And that when we start trying to model him as God, we, we, we are unable to stop our minds flowing through the Greek or Roman model and making God something that he never was and he will not be and he does not want to be. And that Jesus came desperately to speak for the Father and say, I'm a father, I'm a father, I've always been a father, I just want to be a father. If you'll understand, I work like a father, I function like a father, and you're my children and I'm your father, then we'll be just fine in every area of prayer, of living, of loving, of giving, because it'll be a father-to-son relationship. So let me, let me finish by saying this. Um, there is a connection in understanding what we've talked about tonight with the baptism of Jesus. Um, because the ultimate objective in the acceptance of new covenant living is to grasp what happened when Jesus was baptized 
by John in the River Jordan. You find it in Luke chapter 3 and verse, verse 21. So his Jesus is now 30 years of age. He comes to the River Jordan and he's going to be baptized by John the Baptizer. And um, as John baptizes him, it says the heavens opened and, and a voice spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Okay? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it says the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove as Jesus came out of the water, which was a, a mark of the anointing because it's from that point that, that Jesus became the Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. Okay? Anointing was something you did to kings and, and priests to declare God's favor was on them, God's mantle was on them, God's authority was on them. So from that moment, Jesus became the Christ. So there's another little lesson for some of you. Jesus was not born the Christ, he became the Christ. He was born Jesus, became the Christ. This is very important for something else that I'm going to teach you in, in a future week. So as Jesus comes up out of the water... Verse 23 of Luke chapter 3 says, and Jesus began his ministry, right? So he's 30 years old, and he began his ministry after he was baptized. However, before he's begun his ministry, that means before he's preached a message, before he's healed a sick person, before he's changed any water into wine, before he's raised anybody from the dead, before he's met a multitude, before he's done any of the things that we would measure to say, wow, God says to him, you're my son, I'm pleased with you, I love you. Now what's important about this is that that had to come before Jesus' ministry, not after Jesus' ministry. Otherwise, we would believe that God says that to people who've been successful in ministry, who've been successful in life, who can now pre present to God all the things that they've done for God to say, I love you, I'm pleased with you. So the Bible's very deliberate here that God says about Jesus before he does anything of note, you're my son, I love you. I'm pleased with you. So that wasn't the reward for something that had been done. It was the motivator for something to be done, right? Now, when you make God a God, that's a reward for something you have done. Or God will say he loves you and well done because of what you've done. But you see, when you see him as father, he doesn't say that at the end. He says that at the beginning. And he says it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And it never changes. You're my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you because it's not dependent upon anything that we ever do. So here's my point on this. Here's how father works. He didn't tell, take this opportunity to tell Jesus what to do. He took this opportunity to tell Jesus who he was and what God thought of him. So, so here's, here's, here's the difference. When I make God God instead of Father, invariably it all becomes about what I'm supposed to do. Because the very model of God is that if he is God and I'm me, what am I supposed to do so that God will accept me so that God will be pleased with me so that God will bless me. What do I have to do? And so the church becomes obsessed with, with struggle, the struggle of what am I supposed to do? Uh, and we could talk quite a bit about how 
people have got in all kinds of difficulty. What is the will of God for my life? Have I missed the will of God for my life? Will the will of God for my life now be lost? And, and all this quandary that comes from, if God is a God, worry about all that stuff. But if he's not God and his father, don't worry about any of that stuff. Because you see, God never told Jesus what to do. He told him who he was. And the wonderful truth is that when you know who you are, somehow you know what to do. Because you know who you are. Now, would you agree with me that probably the greatest struggle that individuals face across the globe, in our world, and particularly in the West, where we've had so much Greco-Roman influence, is the struggle for identity. This desperate struggle for who am I, who are we? We've got to find our identity. We've got to find who we are. We've got to be who we're supposed to be. And why does this struggle for identity come? It's because we've had no experience of the Father. We're still living in the God mentality that says that I have to do in order to find. But you see, when you know who you are, you know what to do. So the key to living in the new covenant is not so much God telling you what to do, but letting you know who you are. And it's this understanding that will give you insight on what to do. One of the reasons I'm so keen for you to grasp this understanding that God doesn't want to be God and that he wants to be Father is because it frees you from all of those things that you believe that God is looking for in your life. Now that doesn't mean that you are free from being who you're supposed to be because love causes you to be something because of the love that's expressed upon you. John said we love him because he first loved us. Or in other words, having been set free, that the pressure is not me being measured on how much I love God, but now the pressure's off because now it's, it, John said, here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. The pressure's off. He loves me, but we love him because he first loved us. So therefore, I now know who I am, loved by God. So I know what to do. I love back. So when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, and it's new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, when you know who you are, loved by God... In spite of, not because of, then you're able to love one another in that same way. Extend the grace, extend the kindness, extend the love. And then your mission is not to enforce a moral code which a God would impose upon the world to say this is what I want as a God. Your mission then becomes to express the, the love of the one who is Father, although in nature he is God, he is now Father and now that love is pouring out of me which is why a big, wide, huge acceptance begins to come into our world that gets rid of the boundaries and gets rid of the walls and says this is not about your behaviour, this is about the love of God in you and let that be the foundation of all that you do. So I believe, having said all that, that, that really, if, if we were to break it down, if, if I were only to be able to give you just a couple of seconds of advice and that would be all I could give you for life, I've come to this conclusion that only two things really matter. Um, and I'm not doing this just because it, it, it preaches good and sounds, you know, it sounds uh, uh, dynamic, you know, only two things really matter. Um, you know, and then you think, but nay, there's another two as well. 
and another one on that. I'm serious about this. I believe if you break it all down, there's only two things that really matter. And these are the two things I believe that really matter. Number one, who is God? If you figure that one out, you're halfway there. I've tried to help you with that tonight. Who is God? And the second thing that I believe is the second thing of the two things that matter is who are you? Because if you can figure out who is God and you can figure out who are you, the rest will take care of itself. Seriously. Because it restores the order that God created us in. Who is he? Father. Who are you? Son. And if we had lived in that revelation, if Adam had lived in that revelation, the life of God would have flowed in the earth, flowed in his life, flowed in our lives. And the reason Jesus came back was to get us away from all that stuff, all of those laws, all of those commandments, all the difficulties and say, okay, let's start. Here's how Jesus' life emerges. Just two things matter. Who is God and who are you? You're my beloved son, I love you. In other words, God said, okay, if you grasp this, it's going to work. I'm your father, you're my son. From that very moment, from that very moment of grasping that, Jesus knew what to do. And the other amazing thing is he had the power to do it. That whatever it was that he was supposed to do, he had the power to do it. Now, for you, it might not be raising a dead person. It might not be feeding a multitude. But we all have things to do. But the truth is when we understand this, we have the power to do what it is that we need to do. Even facing the cross, Jesus had the power to do what he needed to do. Why did he have that power? Because he knew who God was, his father, and he knew who he was, God's son. So I hope that's helped you tonight to, to get a fresh perspective on on, on who God really is and what God really wants because I am absolutely convinced that God never wanted to be God and that at best he is a reluctant God and that right from the beginning what the scripture is really teaching us if we look through the right lens is God started as a father he re-established himself as a father in Jesus and in us, in our generation he is still that father who is wanting to show himself to the world so refuse to be part of the process that, that distorts the intention of God and commit yourself to the wonderful, dangerous place of allowing him to be father, being his son, and letting the grace that comes because of that revelation flow through you. All right, we're done. Okay.